hey, you're listening to Chew On That, and here's what we're chewing on today. I've actually felt like God's been pushing me and prompting me to do a series on Romans for a couple of years, but I've avoided it because of how robust it is. There's a richness to Romans that I think is unparalleled in all of literature, whether that's scriptural or secular. In fact, it's regarded by many scholars as the most profound piece of writing in existence, which makes it one of the most challenging books in all of the Bible. So with all that in mind, let's dive in today to a teaching that we're simply calling Who? My name is Pastor Scott, and you're listening to the Chew On That podcast today. We are listening and chewing on uh, Pastor Sean's message uh, from April 19th, 2020, uh, called Who? It's in a new series on the book of Romans, the greatest letter ever written. Today, my guest is my very special friend, Nikki Neville. Say hello, Nikki. Hello. It's so good to have you here. It's good to be here. People should know who you are because you're a really great person to know. But for the people that don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I started coming to Life Church about three years ago with my husband and my daughter, who's now 15. Um, and we've been coming ever since. And I help with Night Church downtown and with various life groups at Life Church. That's awesome. Where are you from originally? Originally from Lower Michigan. Oh, like where in Lower? Is it? Are you from Nipsey Russell? No, I'm from uh, originally Muskegon, and then um, Matt is from Kalamazoo, and I see. we lived in Grand Rapids right before we moved here. Gotcha. It's not really called Nipsey Russell; it's called Ypsilanti, but it always reminds me of Nipsey Russell. <laughs> which, anyway, sorry. And what do you do for a living, Nikki? I am a purchaser slash estimator for a small construction flooring company. That's awesome. And are you still working even though people are staying home because of COVID? I am. Construction's still considered essential. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. So like I said, today we're going to talk about um, Sean's message. She's just uh, right away with some really good stuff. So let's give that a listen. Anytime you engage in serious study of any great life, you need to brace yourself for surprises. And incidentally, the greater the life, the more shocking the surprises. It's inevitable that the circumstances and events that led to the greatness in that person took place in the hidden years when few were looking and no one actually cared. But the steel of greatness is forged in the pit. It's important we remember that, especially when we find ourselves in a pit that we've convinced ourselves nothing of value will ever come out of. You know, Sean, open up the sermon talking about how context is everything. And that was one of the first things that I found that I loved about Life Church was that Sean didn't just tell me what the Bible said, didn't just like pull a verse out of the Bible. Like he, he helped me understand like what was happening then or what, where this person was coming from or who this person was. And so he opens up uh, this sermon talking about like, we got to figure out the who, what, when, where, and the why of, of what the Bible is. And so he starts talking about Paul and he talks about how Paul is a, you know, a product of his history. And so um, I love this idea because so often we just, I feel like so many of the things in our lives, we look at them as being like, we just know them for what they are now. Like our parents, like when we came on the scene, you know, our parents were already our parents. And so to think of our parents as being 12 or seven or 18 or, you know, whatever, we never really think about them in that context. We don't have that kind of context. And so 
but why would, you know, why would their lives be any different? I mean, I think about when I was 17 and the choices that I made then and how that shapes who I am now. And so, uh, so Sean points out, like everyone's got that. And it's, it's never clear that when you start looking at people in history, right? For sure. I think that, you know, right now I have a 15 year old daughter and to hear her tell it, I've never been through anything or experienced what she's going through. And, you know, it doesn't occur to her that mom had this life before or mom had experiences that she doesn't know about or that I might be able to offer some insight into what she's going through because we don't talk about that stuff with our kids. You know, we we are a different person with them than we were all those years ago. Yeah, that's good. And I love this idea where you talked about how the steel of who we are was made in the fires of, you know, like when no one was looking. I'm I'm sure I'm taking that out of uh, out of order, but like I think about so much about like who I am now and today and not only who I am to my kids, but who I am to my clients, you know, in my business or who I am to my church, you know, for the people that come to my church. And so one thing I always try to be is to help them understand that context that, you know, I feel like we should all be as transparent as possible. Like we've got nothing to protect, you know, we've got nothing to be ashamed of because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so even if someone looks at me sideways because of what I did when I was 17 or 47, you know, Jesus doesn't look at me that way. And so if I, if that helps someone learn, or if that's helped someone be better, if the fires that I've gone through can be a benefit to somebody else, I'm totally doing that thing. Absolutely. When you say, you know, forged in the pit, I think our greatest learning opportunities come from the hard times when we are in a hard situation, when we don't know what to do, when we're pulled out of our comfort zone. Um, when we experience some kind of trauma, we have to go through that. We have to learn. And every time that we're put into the pit, we come out a little bit stronger. Right. So, you know, I always used to think when I was young, how could these things keep happening to me? Why are they continuing to happen to me? I know now I was in those pits so that I could stand on the other side and hold my hand out to somebody who's gone through it, just like people did to me when I was going through those things. And you do become stronger. And, you know, I don't think Jesus allows those things to happen, but he sure makes them an opportunity for us to grow and become stronger people and also to rely on him more because we know he got us through it and all those hard times. I think it's interesting how the message describes this. It describes it like this. Yelling and hissing, the mob drowned him out. Now in full stampede, they dragged him out of town. They pelted him with rocks. The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a young man named Saul to watch them. As the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down, praying loud enough for everyone to hear. Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words. Then he died. Saul was right there congratulating the killers. So here Sean's talking about the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts. And it gives us kind of a, a, a prologue to Saul, right? Before we meet Saul, you know, at the end of Acts, like we get this introduction to who he was for the Sanhedrin. And um, like before we even talk about the story, I just want to talk about the message real quick, uh, which is my favorite translation of the Bible. And it shouldn't be like, I feel like mine should be, you know, something like the new American standard translation or something, or the King James is the best. And I'm sure there's a thousand reasons why some other 
version or interpretation or translation should be my favorite, but like I'm a plain speaking person. I'm not a simple person. I feel like I'm kind of smart, but like I'm a plain speaking person and I love the message for that. Like I love Eugene Peterson. I think that's the guy that wrote the message. Um, like a really great preacher, a really great man of God and a really great writer. And so I love his plain language. And so I love that Sean uses that to tell this story because I feel like it's so much more vivid than how it might turn out in the King James version where, you know, he was cast out under the street and thou shalt stone thee. And like, I would never pick up that story, but like, I totally pick up the vision, you know, hearing the messages version, but let's, let's talk about like, what's, what's happening here where Paul, you know, is, uh, he's like angling for a position on the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin. I don't know how to say that exactly where, which is the, as Sean alludes to in his, in his whole message, where that's like the, the Supreme court of Israel right? Like the Pharisees, you know, and all these important people sit in this Sanhedrin where they 75 or 78 people or whatever, you know, they rule in judgment, you know, on things that come up. And so he's trying to angle for that. So as there's, you know, getting ready to stone Stephen, Saul's like, wait, let me hang on to your coat while this happens. And it's not very often that we're taught that that's the early stages of Saul. Right. You know, and, and I think that it sheds light on the fact also when you Um, heard what Pastor Sean said about his life. He was a privileged person. He didn't come from, you know, poverty. He didn't come from a traumatic, abusive background. He was a normal guy. He had a leg up over some of the other people. Um, And he still had this dark part of him, right, that made him sit there and and say, I'll hold your coat while you do this evil, evil thing. Um, It shows you that All of us are capable of darkness. All of us have the potential to do unspeakable things. And then when you learn about his story later and what he turned into, what kind of redemption is that? That's amazing. I mean, he he did horrible, horrible things. He wanted to fit in. He, you know, he stood by and let things happen just so he could get a leg up on where he wanted to go. Right. But in the whole time, he never, ever was aware of his evil. Right. Like he was just like. Oh yeah, these guys are bad news bearers. We got to get rid of these guys, right? So it wasn't, he didn't feel like he was doing evil. He felt like he was justified. He felt like he was righteous, right? So when you think about how we treat people in our lives, you know, like we could for sure feel like we're righteous. Well, I mean, these people are dirt. They're scumbags. They're no good. They're, you know, Democrats or they're Republicans or they're this race or they're this religion or they're this something. And you could totally see where for the longest time in our world, it was easy for us to look at someone and say, oh, these are pieces of dump. We can get rid of this. We're not evil for doing that. When in fact, you know, it turns out maybe we are. The Jewish population in Tarsus was also significant, among which were Paul's parents, both of whom were Pharisees, which is members of the party most fervent in Jewish nationalism and strict in the observance of and obedience to the law of Moses. Here Sean talks about how Saul is from Tarsus. And I feel like even like a, you know, level two Jesus person knows that Paul was from Tarsus, but I didn't know that Tarsus was in Turkey. Like I never knew that. And so, um, that's really fascinating. So it certainly puts into the puts in the context how when Paul starts taking these trips to other churches and other lands, right? These not Jewish places, the places where the Gentiles are, it makes sense that he goes in and around Turkey because that's like his hood, right? That's I mean, that's where he comes from. I didn't know that his dad was a Pharisee. I didn't know that. And it, I mean, and he said like both and Sean says like both his parents were Pharisees. And so I didn't know that there could be chick Pharisees. I didn't know I didn't know that that was a thing. 
But, um, but you could see where, again, going back to what we said before, where this was just what was right, right? I mean, we have to protect our God. We have to protect our temple. We have to protect our rabbis. We have to protect our Sanhedrin. We have to protect everything. And like, and this Jesus guy and his way and the people that are proclaiming his news, that they're, they're trouble. It's trouble. And so, yes, they would be fierce. And yes, they would be uh, zealous. They'd have zeal. I'm not sure. I think it's they'd have zeal. They'd z- zealously. Yeah, they would zealously pursue, right? Like making it right, you know? And so I love getting this context. And, you know, like we keep saying, context is so, so important. It reminds me actually, one thing that we talk a lot about, like in Alpha, or we talk about it at Life Church Downtown, is uh, sometimes people struggle reading the Bible because, they, you know, they open it up and they don't have the context. And one thing that, one tool that we've all found uh, was read scripture from the Bible Project, where when you're reading the Bible, you can like, they show like a little video, like it's a little cartoon video or comic book video is probably more like it, right? Where it says, hey, this is what was happening in the whole world right now. And here's who's ruling and here's who wanted to rule and here's who's at war and here's who the guy was who wrote it and here's who he was writing it to. All that stuff gives you context, which makes the words seem all the more important. Have you used Read Scripture much or the Bible Project? I have actually, and and I believe that I heard about it from uh, grow more, maybe your growth track, third one, or um, but it is amazing because it draws me pictures and I'm visual. And to be able to kind of talk about the story in the context in which it was happening is helpful for me because I'm not a history buff. Um, the other thing, when you mentioned the Message Bible, that's why the Message Bible works for me because you know, a lot of that stuff, the King James Version, the New International Version, if you have a good grasp on history, that might be easier. If you don't, you get really caught up in that stuff. And what the read scripture does is it takes it to a simple format. It almost reminds me of something maybe kids would learn in Sunday school at a little bit higher level, but it really helps to lay things out nicely and help you understand what you're reading, whichever version you choose. Yeah. No matter what, you got to stop trying to open up the Bible and start at Genesis or even start at Matthew and just think that it's just all going to make sense because it's not a novel. It's not a storybook. It's not, you know, a kind of book that you're used to reading. And so context is everything. And so, according to the scriptures, Saul set his plan in motion and began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. That's not a sight for the squeamish. It's difficult to imagine such deep hatred. A hatred that in Acts chapter 9 led Saul to secure a letter from the high priest that would authorize him to pursue these Jesus people all the way into the city of Damascus, which was about 150 miles away. And he chose Damascus because it was the farthest outpost from Jerusalem with a significant number of Jesus followers. In fact, first century Jewish scholar Josephus writes about a time when there was a massacre of 10,000 Jesus followers in that city. And so he chose Damascus because he knew if he went all the way there, word would spread backwards from Damascus to Jerusalem that there is nowhere you can run, there is nowhere you can hide to escape Saul. I wish you could see that across from me, uh, six full feet uh, away from me, Nikki's wearing uh, God Loves the People We Hate uh, sweatshirt. 
And I feel like it's easy for us to find the people we hate. We talked about it in the last segment, but I just feel like, you know, we're so angry. We're, we're so mad and we want to find an enemy. Like we want to find someone that, you know, that's making us mad so that we can redirect. I'm having a kind of a crappy day. And so I, um, I was at home and I was eating my feelings, uh, with pizza and Oreos much to the chagrin. I'm sure of my, what's the name of the lady that takes care of your diabetes, your endocrinologist, right? I'm sure she would be really sad if she found that out. So don't tell her anyway. And so I, then I, I was coming here and I was really feeling overwhelmed about a bunch of stuff that I have going on. And so like this truck, I was turning right to get out of the highway and this truck was facing me about to turn left. But as you know, the person that's turning right has the right of way. You know what I mean? But like, they didn't think that that was true. And so they totally were going to just like jump in front of me. And I was like super mad at this Dodge Ram for like, dude, I have the right of way. Right. And I started like getting all worked up in my core. Like I was starting getting, and I was like, dude, you are just looking for someone to be mad at. You're just looking to hate somebody right now. But I think, you know, with everything that's going on right now, not even here, but worldwide, everything that's going on right now, people are hurting and people are suffering and people are scared. And to me, it feels like they're using one of two methods to cope with it. They're either experiencing all kinds of, you know, completely poorly placed rage or depression. And the feelings and the intense emotion has to come out in some way. And, you know, I, I try to surround myself with the people that remind me, you know, when you hear something from somebody or when you're confronted with anger or when you feel angry to give grace not only to that other person, but to yourself when you're feeling it too, because it's just the feelings that are trying to escape somehow from all the pressure that we're all under. So that guy who turned the wrong way or turned in front of you or took your spot, you know, he might have a family member in the hospital right now. He, you know, he could have just found out his job's closing. We don't ever really know what people are going through. And when we can practice that, that, grace and that mercy for other people and realize we're all human and it, it's hard right now. You know, we're better off and we need to be graceful and merciful with ourselves as well. Yeah, that's for sure. He was not full of grace or mercy. Saul was not full of grace. Or mercy. He was not. So like he hated, right? He had to have hated Jesus. He had to have hated the people that followed Jesus, the people that were preaching Jesus. He had to hate them to want to walk or ride 150 miles. Right. So like that's from like here to great America, isn't it? Or Chicago or something like that. Like, I don't, I'm really bad with my, I feel like Milwaukee's 110 miles from here. Right. So yeah. then like great America, that would be great like, America. Yeah. Yep. from here to great America. So he was, I mean, I actually, I do know cause he was riding a horse. He got thrown from his horse on his way to Damascus. Right. So, but like, that's a long way to ride a horse even. And so like, you've got to be mad at someone who want to go that far on a horse to start, you know, collecting people and persecuting them and putting them to death. And so what a rage Paul must have had. And so this idea that Sean paints this picture of a guy that's going to go as far as he can possibly go to find a Jesus guy and then work his way back, right? So go to great America and then come back, you know, to Zion and then, you know, cross the border into Pleasant Prairie and, you know, find some Jesus people there and then find some people, Jesus people in Racine or Kenosha. Or like, think about that. Like, if you try to put that again into context, you're like, man, that guy was mad, but he felt righteous. Just like we sometimes feel like I felt righteous as the guy that was with the guy in the Dodge Ram truck. Like I felt like, listen, the state of Wisconsin told me that I have the right of way. And so I'm sure that Paul felt like the Bible is clear about that this is heresy and that they're heretics and that they need to be put to death in stone. And so he didn't think he was wrong for being mad. 
Well, no, and and in Pastor Sean's message, he said, In the name of God, this man, who by his own testimony was blameless according to the law, blindly believed his bloody deeds honored God by ridding the earth of this cult. He thought it was a group that was against God. Right now, I just wonder how many people are, you know, acting out, maybe not to that degree, but against government, against our governors, our state governments, our our presidents, healthcare workers, even, you know, you feel like you're doing the right thing, but it leads you to do horrible things. That trip would have taken him about seven days. And over that time frame, his anger never subsides. His rage burns hotter with every mile he passes. This guy was bloodthirsty. It's why he claimed later the title, the chief of sinners. He wasn't attempting to sound modest. In Saul's mind, that's exactly what he was. And in looking at the darkness of his past, it helps us to understand his gratitude for God's grace. So I think it was important for Saul to acknowledge that he was the chief of sinners. He did a lot of really awful, horrible things. Um, Way worse than a lot of us ever have thought of doing. I mean, I'm thinking when I get mad, I might punch one pillow. I wouldn't punch pillows from here to great America. I would punch the pillow and be done. But that kind of fire and that kind of rage that he experienced to be able to still receive God's grace after that. What kind of a forgiving God do we have and what kind of a loving God do we have? And it just reminds you that nobody is beyond salvation. Nobody's beyond a second chance for God. He takes people who've done unspeakable things and gives them a new life in him. That's amazing. Yeah. I love this redemption story of Paul. Like it's one of my most favorite things. Um, because for me, I think about like my garbage or my yuck. And like you said, probably a little bit more than hitting a pillow, but not as much as like, you know, holding cloaks for killers. Right. And for me, I need that redemption. I need to know that even despite of who I was or what I had done, that he still loves me, that he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, why, why are you revisiting this place that you were evil or that you did bad or you, you know, whatever, why do you revisit that? Because I don't remember that. I don't, I don't remember that at all. And so for Paul to say, I'm, you know, the chief of sinners, right? I mean, I just feel like the grace and mercy of God. I'm trying to think this through, through the eyes or through the lens of not believers, of unbelievers, where like there's this guy who's famously unbelieving, who's a friend of mine that on social media just will tear me inside out upside down every time I try to post something about my faith. And like, I think I I posted something about how it was around Christmas time and about how God came to earth and wasn't born in a throne room or wasn't born, you know, in a palace, but was instead born in a dung heap, right? A crap pile because he knew that's where he would find me. And like that made this guy really mad. He's like, Scott, you're such a great guy and you're such a, you know, you're a 
community leader and you're a successful business person and you're a great dad and you're like, and I don't deny those things, but I certainly don't claim those things. Like, I think all those things are true because he did find me in a dung heap and he did pull me out. And just like Paul and just like David and just like Abraham and just like Moses and Noah and everybody else, right? Like he pulled people out of a trash heap, out of a crap heap and still worked through them. And so I feel like whoever I am as a business person or as a father or as a, you know, pastor or as a, whatever I am, I am because like God animates me and and God motivates me. And like, he, he junk picked me. Well, you know, when I first came to um, Life Church, I wanted a place that was not a frilly, you know, not a lot of pageantry. I just wanted to feel at home. And I believe it was one of the first weeks I came to Life Church and Pastor Sean was up on the stage talking about his own failures, the things that he had done wrong in his life, how he had been at one point so far from Jesus. Right. Um, Every leader at Life Church is so open about their past, their mistakes, their shortcomings. And how often do we say, you know, as members of the church or you as a leader of the church, we're a a whole bunch of broken people and God uses broken people. And I never knew that when I was young, I would look at Bible stories and I would look at religious people as these people who put on pretty clothes and drove their fancy cars to church every Sunday. They really had all their stuff together. And what I love about Life Church is that nobody will tell you that they have their stuff together because none of us do. And God gives us grace and he lets us come together and admit those things. And he loves us anyway. And when they say we're a church for anybody, but not for everybody, We're a church for everybody because there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of Jesus. Where maybe other religions, you know, there there may be some feelings of guilt or punishment or, you know, a lot of people think they're not good enough to come to church. And our church welcomes everybody. And our church not only welcomes everybody, but we celebrate the fact that we're broken people. And through fellowship with each other and through learning more about God and having a greater relationship with him, um, with praying to Jesus, we can be saved and we can be turned into something wonderful. Regardless of how we look on the outside, everyone has a dark side. Friend, you'd be amazed if you knew the darkness lurking in the pasts of the people who've made a difference in your life. Whether we want to acknowledge it or whether we want to admit it, we're all sinful by birth, by nature, and by choice. So never forget what life was like outside the boundaries of God's grace. I feel like every week, Sean's got a showstopper for me, and that was my showstopper. I never, never forget how you operated outside the light, warmth, brilliance, God, grace, and mercy. And so I know we kind of just talked about that, but like, he's right that, you know, when I was coming up, I went to two churches. A lot of people know that. So I would go to Catholic church with my mom, and I would go to a Pentecostal church, an Assemblies of God church with my dad. And I thought for sure that the people that were there, and certainly the people that were leading, had no dark, right? Like they, I don't know, were born in a you know, Crystal Palace, never did anything wrong. Then went to a Crystal Bible College or seminary or whatever and came out of that. And that's how they 
could be holy enough to be a leader. And like you said, Sean was like, yeah, I was in prison. Yeah, I burgled houses. Yeah, I, you know, whatever, right? All these things. And so it's, it's, a, it's a refreshing to me to know that I can look around and not feel like anyone's better than me. That in fact, I will never find anyone better than me. That if we have any sort of, you know, sanctification, it's because of who Jesus Christ is in us. For sure. And like you said, that was your, your showstopper. My showstopper was in that same snippet, but it was the other part. It was, you'd be amazed if you knew the darkness in the past of the people who've made a difference in your life. And I remember, you know, not, it wasn't that long ago. So I hope I remember, um, a big screw up that I made and talking to some of my church friends about it. And I remember that one of my friends said to me, why would you ever think I wouldn't want to be your friend because of that? Because that was my fear that once I told her this thing, she was going to think less of me and that I wouldn't be good enough to be her friend anymore. And she said, I don't want to choose my friends out of somebody that has stolen a piece of candy once in their life because I can't be real with those friends. That sums up for me what Life Church is for me. The people that have taken time to share their shortcomings with me have made it okay for me to share mine. And the people who have talked about that darkness made the darkness not so alone anymore and made it so that people don't have to hide the darkness anymore. They can say what their life is. They can say what they've been through. They can say what they've done. You know, how much pressure is it for everyone to walk around and act like they're this perfect person all day, every day? It's exhausting and they can't maintain it. But to be able to go to church, to have your mentors say, you know what? I walked that road. You know what? When I was your age, I did the same thing. And for someone to be able to look at someone who's, you know, miles down in their Jesus journey and say, well, you know what? He's a pastor and he did that. There is hope for me. And I can come out of this on the other side. That's encouragement to me. And I love that thought. I love that that idea that the people that I look up to had a dark side because it means they learned and it means they don't anymore and that they overcame and that gives me hope. Regardless of how foul your past, anyone can find a new beginning in Jesus. It's never too late to start doing what's right or like my pastor used to say, it's never too late to begin again. When Saul encountered Jesus on that road to Damascus and knelt before the living God, he finally faced the reality of his sin. His life was transformed and he started doing what was right. Grace provides that kind of new beginning for Saul, for you, or for me, and it proves God's ability to use any of us regardless of our baggage. So when Pastor Sean shared uh, the quote by his pastor, Dr. Fulton Buntain, and he said, it's never too late to begin again. I think that's such an important message because so many people feel like they're beyond hope. And that's where giving up comes in. That's where, you know, we have an increase in, in mental health and, and um, problems with suicide, depression, alcoholism. People feel like they are beyond hope and they give up. And it is really never too late to begin again. And I am reminded where, 
you know, when somebody, I'm, I'm not going to get the name right, but they said, how many times do we have to forgive? And he said seven times 77, basically unlimited number of times, right? We have to forgive people and it's never too late to begin again. Some of the greatest success stories didn't start till late in life after they've been through all kinds of hard times. They grew through that and they became inspirations to people. Um, we can always turn around. We can always start doing the right thing. Uh, I love when he said grace provides that kind of new beginning for Saul, for you and for me, because we still have that opportunity every day to turn around and start new. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts on this. I feel like for me, like I'm uh, wildly out of shape. And so I should definitely eat better than I do. I should definitely exercise more than I do. But every time I start, like I, I think about like in my timeline, like cause you are like a, your Facebook history or whatever, your time hop. Like I've got a lot of day one photos. I have a lot of before photos in my camera roll, right? Like I'm going to start and I'm going to take my picture and I'm going to start because it's like in five months or in 10 months, I'm going to look back and see what a gross ucky thing I was. And now look at me now. I've got no after photos and nothing but before photos. And I think that some people are that way spiritually and emotionally where like, I don't think I just wrote this the other day. I don't think people commit suicide because they're done with life. I think they commit suicide because they're done with pain. And so I think that people drink because they're done with pain. I think people shop too much because they're done with pain. I think that people sleep around because they're done with pain or they're, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think, you know, the end result is what they're looking for, but they sure like the way that the thing makes them feel in the meantime. And so this idea of it's never too late to start again and you can't be a quitter, you know, it applies to my physicalness, my health by a lot, a lot. Like, and I'm not proud of it. I like, I feel like I'm kind of joking around about it, but I'm not like, it's a thing, you know? And I look at my kids and how much I love my kids and how, you know, but if you love them as much as you said, Scott, like, why would you not, why would you not stop being type two diabetic? Because it's completely within your power. Why are you eating Oreo cookies? If you're a diabetic, you're not diabetic because your grandma was diabetic. You're diabetic because you're lazy. But every example that you just listed there in terms of alcohol or drugs or sex or food, any addiction you do to um, escape, you do to get away, you get you do to stop feeling because you're feeling too much and it hurts. And I I was talking to someone today um, and they brought up the 12 step the serenity prayer and they said you know really you take out the word alcohol and you can put any other one in because it's all an addiction and we are just human people who are trying to cope with all this stuff that's going on and it's too much and when we really don't have a higher power and we really don't have anything to focus our energy on or to turn these things over to that pressure is crushing and there needs to be something to get away. I mean, whether you're doing bad things or, or you're doing good things as a pastor, you volunteer for, you know, this and you do night church and you have a photography business on the side and you're a friend to 180 people. And that, that that's a lot. So when is the downtime? And sometimes when you're just running through life and everything's piling up, where's the escape? 
we have to find one. I think as we grow in our Jesus journey, um, as we have more of a relationship with him, it becomes easier to turn some of that over to him and pray about how we're feeling and maybe release some of that. But there's hurt underneath all of it. And until we're, we've unpacked that hurt, until we've dealt with traumas, until we've turned it over to God, we're going to fall back on those because we don't have that I'm all in mentality. Yeah, that's good. I like that. I think how great would it be if you were someone who was not healthy like me and then you got on the scale and the scale's like, I don't know what you're checking the scale for. I don't recognize your 275 pounds. I want that scale. <laughs> yeah. Right? Where you're like, yeah. I don't even know what you're doing here. Get off the scale, man. Go live life. You're full of whatever. So that, I mean, that's, I mean, it's a bit of a stretch, but that's, I mean, that's, so as we try to parallel, you know, being more healthy or being more whatever, and then the being broken about that, but then being broken spiritually or emotionally, you know, the amazing thing about God is he is that magic scale that says, you're not that you're not, you're not your weight. You're not whatever this scale says. That's not who you are, right? You're a child of God. I've adopted you, right? And it's not even like like a crappy foster home adoption. It's like a full-on adoption where you're a child of God, a prince or a princess of heaven and everything that that entails. And so when you screw up on a diet, right, it shows up on the scale. But when you screw up, you know, in the spiritual walk, God, it's never like, well, you got to go back to start, right? Like he's never like, it's not like Candyland, right? Like or I'm getting like 16 analogies going on here, but like shoots and ladders or whatever, right? Like, it's not like that where you end up going back to start. He's like, it's okay. Let's do better today, man. And so I love that about him. And maybe that's why I have such a love affair with him because he's not my scale or he's not my blood sugar meter. He's not my whatever, right? Like he's not, he doesn't keep count. No, he, he gives us, um, I keep going back to the word grace, but he, he gives us freedom to make choices And then he gives us the ability to evaluate our choices and say, probably not a good one. And then we have the opportunity to try again and again and again, if it takes that many times. And for a lot of us, it does. Okay. I think that's it. I think that's our show. Nikki, it was great having you. It was great to be here. I hope I can invite you to do it again. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I love your insight. I love yours and I appreciate you asking me to come. Nope. It was my pleasure. So uh, that's it. We'll see you next time on Chew On That. I hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, uh, please uh, subscribe to Chew On That on your favorite podcast listening channel. Uh, If you liked it, you are welcome to share it with friends. Let them know what you found here. If you're a friend of Nikki, you better like it and share it with everybody because she'll find you and she'll kill you. (laughs) She'll go go all the way to Great America to find you. I will. (laughs) I will take no prisoners. (laughs) Anyway, thanks so much. Hope you guys are staying happy, healthy, and hopeful. Talk to you soon. Oh,